Good morning and welcome to Entrepreneurial Realities, the podcast of the Venture Lab of the Munich Technical University. In this series, we will discuss with leading entrepreneurs, venture capitalists and intellectual authorities to illustrate many sides of entrepreneurship and inspire students at Two Men Elsewhere to start their own entrepreneurial journeys. My name is Antoine Le Boyer. I'm the Managing Director of the Software and AI Tool Venture Lab, and we are joined today with Bill Reichert. Bill is currently partner at Pegasus Tech Ventures and previously co-founded Garage Technology Ventures. In addition to his track record as technology investor, he's a lecturer at the University of Berkeley. But probably more importantly, he's the writer of a great, great book called Getting to Well, Silicon Valley Pitch to Secrets, Silicon Valley Pitch, Secrets to Entrepreneurs. And he's basically essential reading the same link as Crossing the Chasm or the Lean Startup. Bill, welcome to Entrepreneurial Realities. Thank you so much, Antoine. It is my delight and my honor to be here. <laughs> Bill, before we start speaking about pitching to VC, can you explain how you became a VC? <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was drawn to Silicon Valley um, a long time ago, uh, and I wound up uh, as a graduate student here at Stanford University. And while I was at Stanford, uh, I came across this sort of interesting problem that needed to be solved. It wasn't really, it wasn't really my intent when I signed up for graduate school, but um, a VC encouraged me to chase this particular problem. And so I did, and I started a software company while I was a graduate student at Stanford uh, before it was fashionable for graduate students to start software companies. And so I got hooked by Silicon Valley on the entrepreneur side. Uh, the, you know, that company actually was just a spectacular success right out of the gate, um, extraordinary experience. And then one day it crashed and burned, boom, it blew up. <laughs> and so, you know, um, it was uh, interesting, you know, because every once in a while you'll hear people from Silicon Valley say that, <clears throat> you know, Silicon Valley embraces failure because, you know, we, you know, you want to fail fast, et cetera, et cetera. You, you've probably heard this meme coming from Silicon Valley. Um, but I was not, I didn't feel particularly embraced when, when we crashed and burned. <laughs> but what is, what is true, what is true about Silicon Valley is that when you crash and burn, you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and then you spin the story a little bit and then you do it again. And so I got a chance to do it again. And I went in and actually, I was asked to help restart a company that was failing. So obviously the VCs thought, hey, Bill knows what failure looks like. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe he can avoid it this time. Um, so yeah, as, as it turned out, we took that company public. Boom. So, um, uh, and then I actually did it two more times, uh, two other startups. Um, and uh, when I was in the process of selling my fourth company, I got a call from a friend who said, hey, Bill, how'd you like to start a venture capital firm? Uh, and I got together with Guy Kawasaki and a few other people, and we started Garage Technology Ventures to be a different kind of venture capital firm. Um, but so that's how, I became, that's how I became a VC. <laughs> There's actually uh, on the website of garage.com, there's still some amazing documents which uh, are of great value. I looked them up before I looked at Pegasus and this <laughs> great stuff. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. 
I mean, we wanted to be the most outreach-oriented VC in Silicon Valley. So our whole thesis was, you know, we wanted to we wanted to give access to the sort of insider knowledge to entrepreneurs because our feeling as entrepreneurs had been that this venture capital thing was this sort of closed old boys network kind of uh, club. Uh, and our attitude was, hey guys, this is this is what you gotta do. And this is how it works. Uh, so we, we did, uh, you know, obviously Guy wrote books and um, we did conferences and we published a lot of material. We did workshops. We taught at Stanford, we taught at Berkeley, we taught at Harvard um, to try to get act, you know, to try to give entrepreneurs access to sort of our own experiences about what it was really like to be an entrepreneur and what this mysterious VC community was all about. Now, if we go back to the, the theme of pitching, um, how should we make sure that we should never pitch to you? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, there's so many ways, you know, I actually, um, uh, so if you go, if, if you go on, on YouTube, you will find a video called the top 10 terrible, horrible, very bad slides. <laughs> and so, and so that's, that was my way of, of sort of offering to entrepreneurs um, some things you should not do, you know, and, and in a sort of tongue in cheek way, pointing out the right way to communicate the different points that you need to make when you are pitching to a VC. Um, the, you know, and so you'll see a number of, uh, of sort of, is a number of, of almost literally secrets that, that the, the, commu the, the community is just not telling entrepreneurs. It's bizarre to me that, that pitch coaches still get away with things like telling entrepreneurs, you should start with the problem. No, you should not start with the problem. I mean, that is, you know, when you're pitching a VC, if you sort of lean into, you know, do you know how many people die every year from cancer? Or do you know how many tons of carbon dioxide we put in the air? Or, you know, do you, many, do you know how many shopping carts are abandoned in e-commerce sites? I mean, do not start that way. But for some un, unimaginable reason, pitch coaches think that, you know, well, that's a clever way to craft a pitch. You start with the problem and then you talk about the solution. But, you know, one of my, as you can tell, it's a pet peeve of mine, is, is these entrepreneurs who've been told to start with the problem and they spend the first minute or two or three or four talking about, you know, this problem. And VCs, guys, we don't have a lot of time, okay? <laughs> We don't have that, a lot of that, time. That is something that I <laughs> teach every student. If you're at a meeting at, say, 542 with a VC, don't mm -hmm. arrive at 543. Because this is <laughs> because for VCs, time is probably more important than even their capital. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, and I don't, you know, entrepreneurs don't have a lot of time either, right? So, so I'm not suggesting that we're somehow special people. It's just, it's just life, right? Yeah. And so just use your common sense. 
And now, if we, I'm sorry, if we if we come back to this first minute, because you just, you've said it quite mm -hmm. a lot, what is really important is to do something which maybe entrepreneurs wouldn't think about it, but you've said it like this is quasi-emotional. You have to be able to establish something with the person you are talking to, which is not um, brainy. It's if you are if you want to be too rational and start articulating a problem, you're going to be missing the point. Can you? Is this is this what you are? Is this the way you've been describing this? Am I correctly describing what you're recommending? Well, the core of what I'm recommending is that you've got to get the person you're talking to, whether it's a VC, whether it's a prospective customer, whether it's a possible recruit to join your team, you know, every time, every time you're communicating with the outside world, you've got to get the person on the other side to say, wow, that's amazing. Really, you can do that? Tell me more, right? You got to get them to wow. And so, you know, the point that I make that you're tapping into is, is wow is not an intellectual response, right? You know, wow is an emotional response. It could be triggered, you know, it can be triggered by a whole bunch of things. Now, again, a lot of pitch coaches are, are teaching people, you got to get them emotionally engaged. And so, you know, entrepreneurs, they talk about babies and they talk about their dead uncle, and that's not the point, right? <laughs> that's not the point. Um, you know, the emotionally engaged means, especially, you know, for a, for a VC or for even a customer or for a potential recruit, emotionally engaged means that they find what you're talking about to be at some level thrilling. You know, maybe, you know, you can do something with, with bits that nobody else on the planet can do, you know, it, 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 it's not about, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, something that is, is what we typically think of as emotionally engaging. But if you can get people excited, you get, you know, my heart beating faster, you get my pulse racing, that makes a huge difference. But 99% of entrepreneurs speak is about trying to just dump a bunch of facts or, or information on the listener, you know, hoping that they'll, you know, sort of convince them that somehow what they're doing is exciting. But, but what, what I really and strongly encourage entrepreneurs to do is, is, you know, in that first minute, in the first 30 seconds, figure out how to get the person on the other side to get just, um, you know, extremely excited about what you're talking about because that's what you got to do to get them to keep listening when you're talking about the details of your business. So it's not as if we have to demonstrate with a sort of equation or rational that there is something. <laughs> it has to be a bit of a punch. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, again, I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 Learn, we can learn from the advertising industry, right? So the advertising industry figured out how to make a point and grab people in 30 seconds, right? Yeah. Sometimes they do it in 15 seconds. 
And, and so it's not just about, you know, sort of pretty pictures or whatever. Um, somehow you've got to connect the brain to the heart, to the gut, right? Yeah. You've got you to connect. It's not just about the heart. It's got to make sense. You know, it's got to be something I can understand. And you got to be saying something I can trust to be true. It can't sound like BS. But, you know, now, you know, most of us disparage advertising and most advertising is, is crap. But, but there are some good ads. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the point, the point, the point is, you know, that, that you got to figure out how to grab them, you know, in the first 20 or 30 seconds. And that involves, you know, you got to be clear what you're talking about. You've got to be compelling. You got to get them to wow. And you got to get, you got to give them some evidence to make them believe that they can trust you, that what you're saying is true. So that's, you know, that's my recommendation. <laughs> now, many, many of the projects that we are looking at, at uh, the mm -hmm. Tomb Venture Lab, they are engineering-led deep tech project. And the challenge mm -hmm. when you come uh, to such project is that you don't have some of the classic metrics, which I would say a growth investor will be looking like. You don't have any, you don't have any revenue. Um, you uh, don't have the ability to answer to a number of questions. You've done mm -hmm. quite a lot of, of questions, for instance, about cost of acquisition. And the guys may not have the answers to some of these questions because they are coming too early. So yeah. how do you do you look at, at, at them? How basically would you be... Um, you would you look at a project, a deep tech project, which has which doesn't have this sort of information. Yeah, right. And so you know we we come you know we look at a lot of deep tech, and I would say generally deep tech falls into two buckets, right? So one bucket is a technology in search of a solution. So you've got some scientists or engineers who have come up with a very, very cool way to you know, do something technically. It's not crystal clear that it is a, a value proposition in the commercial world, right? And so, so a technology in search of a solution, we see a lot of that. Um, you know, the other bucket, the other bucket is a technology with a compelling value proposition. And so what I'm saying is before you have revenues, you should be able to demonstrate that your technology will deliver a compelling value proposition for your target customer base. And so, you know, even if you don't know how long it's going to take to acquire customers or how much it's going to cost to acquire customers, from an early stage, seed stage, VC point of view, what I need to see is that you can demonstrate, maybe it's still just in the lab, but you can demonstrate that you can do something that you know, a, a defined group of customers, you know, whether it's you know, enterprise or consumer, whatever, that you can do something that is obviously a compelling benefit to some target group of customers. So, you know, what's a compelling benefit? A compelling benefit, and this is, you know, I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite examples of a deep tech startup was 
you know, this power electronics company, and I was pushing them to say, what is your compelling benefit? And their response was, well, we use silicon nitride. Okay, whoa, <laughs> why, you know, why is that a compelling benefit? Now, maybe, right, maybe if you're a semiconductor scientist, you can appreciate that something about silicon nitride is amazing, right? But, but you know, a compelling benefit is it's going to reduce costs or increase revenue or last longer or, you know, uh, you know have a, you know, extraordinary 10x performance, right? So, you know, make sure that you, as the deep tech entrepreneur, understand from day one that your entire vision has to do with delivering a compelling benefit to customers, not delivering an extraordinary technology. Okay. But, you know, almost genetically engineers focus on product <laughs> rather, I mean, that rather than customers, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's selling the value. Exactly. Right. Right. When, when, what do you, what do you try to assess when you meet team of entrepreneurs? Yeah. So, you know, we've got, we've got a scorecard of sorts, um, you know, that we, we go through to try to, uh, you know, take apart what are the strengths and weaknesses of, of any given company. But, um, but, you know, if your question is specifically about the team hmm. as, you know, and, you know, so, Um, as I said before, the first thing, just to be, you know, just to emphasize this point, the first most important thing about, you know, any startup company that we come across is, do they have a compelling value proposition? So, I, you know, I, I don't care if they've got, you know, Jesus Christ and the 12 disciples you know, as the team, but um The, I, I want to see that they have a compelling value proposition. So in terms of the team, uh, in terms of the team, what we're looking for is this, this sort of hard to craft together combination of balanced across skills and competencies and domain knowledge and unbalanced, meaning, meaning, that when we, when we look at a team, we want to see that there's a diversity of perspective on that team. And, you know, the, the case that I'm referring to here is the team that has this sort of strong, powerful founder who has attracted, you know, some other skill sets and filled out that matrix, but no one dares challenge the founder no one dares to sort of push back. And the founder is sort of the master of the organization and has this, you know, what, we, what, we, what scares us is when you have a founder who, you know, sort of crosses the line from confidence to arrogance. And when you cross that line, sometimes you lose the ability to listen. And so what we're looking for are teams that have, you know, sort of good coverage of the skill set and the knowledge of the domain, but also teams that can work together 
with different perspectives so that, so that anytime you have a problem that needs to be solved, you're getting a diversity of perspectives around the table that, are, that, that know how to work together, creating a culture of problem solving that is not just an arrogant founder who is going to tell everybody what to do. So, you know, that was a, a fairly, you know, complicated discussion of what we look for in teams. But, um, but obviously, obviously, the team composition and the team dynamics are something that are critically important to investors. Okay. Because almost always, almost always, the reason a company fails is because there's something wrong with the team. I mean, yeah, for whatever reason, um, they just either they, they, you know, they, they all got the same mindset and they drove the company over a cliff with the same mindset. You know, nobody spoke up and said, hey, wait a second, this isn't working, you know, <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to see in terms of a team that, that works effectively together. Okay. Um let me ask you something. Uh, I know that you have some relation with VCs in, in Germany. Uh, this mm -hmm. is how actually we got in touch with one of the first speakers on the podcast. Do you mm -hmm. see any differences in, um, I don't know, teams in Europe, teams in California, or way of investing in Europe, um, or way of investing in, in California? And do you think that uh, um, teams in Europe have a chance as much as team in the US? Yeah. So one of the one of the surprising um, uh, positive outcomes of the COVID crisis is that it forced us to go to you know this Zoom approach to working with entrepreneurs, and 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 so what was what has become really interesting is you get on a Zoom with a startup company. And you don't know where they are. <laughs> I mean, you. I mean, obviously, if you do your homework, you should know where they are. But, but, but the you know the practical aspect of it is that I could be talking to a team in San Francisco that is a mixture of nationalities that is as diverse as talking to a team in Germany or talking to a team in India or talking to a team in Singapore. And so the, 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 Zoom, the Zoom reality has flattened the world for entrepreneurs. And so the other thing that's happened is that, that the, sort of the, the, the knowledge stream around entrepreneurship, you know, the TechCrunch newsletter and the VentureBeat newsletter and sort of all of the blogs and all of the books has also sort of flattened the world in terms of sort of the core knowledge base. So you can get entrepreneurs from any corner of the planet that are, you know, excellent or terrible at, at, at you know, building a company and pitching the company. And so what I have discovered is that, that the, the differential between a Silicon Valley team and a German team or a Singapore team has dramatically narrowed over the last just three or four years, and that Zoom has accelerated that narrowing. 
Now, there's, a, there's, you know, there's definitely a difference in the context of the company and what it takes to scale a company in Germany versus what it takes to scale a company in Singapore versus what it takes to scale a company in the US. So that's really different. That is still very different. But sort of the, the launch point, however, I think that difference has narrowed. Now, does this mean that you've been approached by companies that were not in San Francisco in the, you know, since COVID? And does this mean that oh, yeah. you've invested in some of them? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. So we are, um, you know, so we are a global fund and we invest all over the planet. Um, we actually have offices uh, in 16 different locations. So Pegasus Tech Ventures is a very large venture capital firm with over $1.5 billion of assets under management. Our headquarters office is here in Silicon Valley, but we have offices in uh, Japan, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, in Europe. Uh, so we do look global for companies. So that is, that is our mandate anyway. Um, so it was interesting that we did, we did have this sort of landmark last year in July. Last year in July was the first time we invested in a company that we had never met in person. Hmm. Um, now, and it happened, it happened that that company was in India. Uh, and so interestingly, um, you know, had it not been for COVID, we probably would have been much more anxious about investing in India without meeting the team. But since, since you know, everybody we were meeting was via Zoom, um, then there was no basis for distinction just because they happened to be in India. So that was our first uh, investment without meeting a company. And since then, yeah, we've probably done 15 or 20 investments um, where we've actually never met the team in person, you know, because this, this COVID thing has persisted for so long. And an issue that we've seen because of COVID is, of course, the unbelievable expansion of some of the big tech giants, maybe they be in, in China or in the US. And at whom some of the PhD in certain topics are getting uh, mm -hmm. offers where they are getting, you know, <laughs> remarkable sum of money. Do you have the same issue in California? Is this something which is an issue for entrepreneurs? I mean, what's your sense on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge issue here, um, you know, because this is, you know, this is the mothership for, for you know, Google and Facebook and all, you know, all those companies, Apple. Um, and so startups here really struggle to get and keep uh, good engineering talent, because they, you know, these the, these these engineers, you know, almost always have the option of going somewhere else and earning a lot more cash. So it is, you know, it's I think it's an even bigger issue here than it is anywhere else um, in terms of of attracting and keeping engineering talent. And so, <clears throat> you know, again, one of the benefits of of COVID. Um, is that it's become a lot easier to create virtual organizations. So it used to be it used to be that we were 
generally skeptical. It was generally a negative if, and it still is to some extent, um, if teams are scattered uh, geographically, uh, but we've, we've, we've grown to accept it, you know, because of our experience with COVID. And so we see a lot of company, a lot of startups here who are tapping into talent that is not here because the talent here is so expensive and, and hard to keep. Uh, One of yeah. the things that I did when I was running a software company is that I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my, my CTO, for uh, personal reasons, wanted to go to the US. And I actually pushed him to do this because I had an impression, mm-hmm. and it proved to be correct, mm-hmm. that he would talk to many more customers in the US and that he would have a better sense of what the market would be looking like. He would talk to more early adopters and he mm-hmm. would have a better sense for what they would be looking for had he stayed in Europe. Do you still mm-hmm. this? Is this still something which is true? Do I have prejudices? Well, I mean, the issue is how do you, what is the, what's the model for scaling up the company? I mean, so yeah, if the model for scaling up the company is to scale up in the US, then you better have people in the US. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, our frame of reference is no matter what your geographic target is, it's, you know, goes back to the team. We want to see that the team is eager and, and able to get out there and talk to customers on a regular basis. Uh, and so that's, that, that should go without saying that you have, in, as part of your team design and part of your geographic design, you have people on your team and ideally sort of pretty much everyone um, who is out talking to customers on some basis. So, you know, I have this, you know, I, I sort of semi-joke about what I call the 24-hour rule of business planning is you've got 24 hours to put together your business plan before you go out and start talking to customers. Um, and so, you know, subsequently, Steve Blank and Eric Reese, and, you know, this is, this is, this is not a novel concept, right? I mean, that you should be talking to customers, but obviously it was something that I learned way, 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 way back you know, when I was, uh, when I was uh, a, a young, wet behind the ears entrepreneur. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you want not, you know, not just sort of one guy who's responsible for biz dev to be talking to customers, an early stage company, the, you know, the whole team should have exposure one way or the other. The whole team should have exposure to customers and, you know, how customers, what customers need, what customers want, how customers operate. You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's design thinking 101, right? I mean, it's now, it's now been called, it's now been labeled design thinking, but, you know, we've always known this. Yeah. Well, look, first, yeah. I really like what you said, because one of the things that yeah. I did in my company is that I did what we call the customer board. We would actually ask the customer to spend one day in the development office. In a room, they would be in the center, and around the room, they would be the developers listening to them. And we would discuss, you know, product plan, product development. It, this was exactly. amazing. 
the, point, the, the question that I wanted to, to ask about the yeah, US yeah. or the CTO yeah. is the following. Mm-hmm. If you are in something like, you know, like, like software and we were in, you know, enterprise software with system, on system management on, on SaaS monitoring. So something which is where you look at, say, the adoption of SaaS solutions, there were most sol- more, more solutions, quote unquote, there was a bigger market share of these solutions compared to Europe, which was waiting to see these solutions were stable mm. and, and so on. So what I wanted to say mm. is that, uh, yes, they need to go and talk, but it made sense for us to have a CTO being in the market of early adopters. Mm-hmm. So do you, see, do you see the same issue? In other words, if, if, yeah. if, if yeah. the team were to call and say, we want to do this, would you say, okay, this is interesting, but you have to have the CTO being in the US closer to the American market. Is it yeah. still the same thing? Well, I mean, and you're you know, you're tapping into our our dear friend Jeffrey Moore in terms of you know making sure that when you're launching a company, you understand sort of this this progression of different personas that you need to understand and address as you scale your business. And so, yes, frequently around particularly, I guess, enterprise software, um, the US market is sort of pushing the boundaries of business models, customer adoption, customer onboarding. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that get pushed around, um, you know, sort of innovating around models and around relationships between between companies and and customers. Uh, And, you know, as a as as Pegasus, as a global fund, this is not just unique to the U.S. So we see very interesting, different models in Southeast Asia. Then we and we see different models in South Asia, um, you know, in India and in East Asia, in Japan. So you know what what is what is true around the world is that that in in high tech is that in every region, there's some interesting blend of what are sort of global frameworks and approaches and methods um, and local requirements. And so there are, the, you know, the reality is in some parts of the world, uh, for example, in the SaaS space, it, 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 you know, it was confusing for many years to enterprise customers to have this SaaS thing, I mean, this this cloud thing was confusing, right? <laughs> and so, so it, you know, back to the point about early adopters, um, it took a while. It took a while, and you know, we're, we're still not there yet in in some cases in terms of, you know, cloud versus behind the firewall. Um, so there's, you know, there are there are a lot of evolutions of business models and customer requirements that it's really important that team understand, not necessarily because we can implement it today in Germany, but you know you can predict that, that things are going to evolve. And if you're ahead of the curve in terms of your understanding of how things might evolve over time, that could give you a leg up in customer acquisition and in improving the business model and the relationship. So, so yeah, I mean, um, I don't think the U.S. is unique in offering insight into the future of, of technology. 
Um, but certainly there are things you can learn in Silicon Valley that can be very valuable in Germany. And I think there are things you can learn in Southeast Asia. I think there are things you can learn in China. Um, I think there are things you can learn in Africa um, that may be relevant, may not be relevant, but there are differences in each of these geographies that you know make you scratch your head and say, huh, I wonder if I wonder if that would work here. Let's think about that, right? I mean, <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> that makes sense. That's uh -huh. reassuring. <laughs> yeah. That's reassuring. Let me ask you uh, what is our traditional last question, which is do you have any okay. recommendation for students at TUM? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, anytime and every time. I talk to any student at any university. Um, my recommendation is that you suck up everything you can possibly suck up from the university environment. Because being at a university is such an unbelievable luxury to have the opportunity to tap in to brilliant people in different areas on different topics that it's really hard to do, you know, once you get out into, you know, the real world, as we like to say, right? So, I and this may be contrary to, you know, what most entrepreneurs or investors would say, but, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, I could, some people would go down the path of, you know, focus, focus, you know, figure it out, you know, take it, whatever. I don't know. I mean, you know, learn everything, learn everything you can about um, mitochondria, because whatever. <laughs> and my feeling, my feeling is it's your last best chance to broaden your mind um, and to interact with people who are wildly different than you. So now I'll, you know, my uh, when I was in graduate school, when I was in graduate school, I, you know, I actually I actually thought I was going to go do public policy around science and technology in Washington, D.C. I actually, you know, I'm, I thought maybe that's what I would do or maybe maybe go back to a consulting firm or something like that. Um, you know, I was very much into, you know, sort of intellectual policy kind of thinking Um and, and so I took a lot of courses across the university, but, um, you know, one of the courses I took was I took French because I had never, you know, I had studied, I had studied Latin. I had taken seven years of Latin. When Can you still <laughs> speak French? <laughs> no, I can't. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I you know, you know, and I can't even remember how to say it's a pity. Quel dommage, quel dommage, right, quel dommage. That's my, that's about, yeah, I mean, understand this was a long time ago. Um, but I, you know, I took French, I took a drawing class. I took a drawing class as well. I took a course at the Food Research Institute at Stanford um, on international development in agriculture. Um, you know, I took an international policy studies course 
because that I, you know, at the, um, yeah, so I, you know, okay, so that's me, that's me, but I would just encourage students, I would encourage students to take advantage of the university environment to broaden your thinking and try to absorb as many different thoughts and, and, and perspectives as you possibly can, because it's not, you know, the success of your, if you, if you do become an entrepreneur and you, you know, you are in a startup company, your success is going to be more on your ability to think broadly and work with people of a different mindset than it is going to be, you know, doing a better spreadsheet. So that's my, that's my recommendation to university students. Take advantage of the university to broaden your horizons, both intellectually and in terms of the people you get to meet and work with. Bill, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Antoine. It was a great pleasure. Entrepreneurial Reality is available on major podcast platforms where you can find other inspiring presentations. Do subscribe if you like this podcast and want to hear more. Do give us a rating. Let your friends know about it. And we look forward to having you for more Entrepreneurial Realities.